Good evening and welcome to The Source. I'm Caitlin Collins. Tonight, a clear and firm message from Israel. No ceasefire in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu making clear that he is rejecting multiple international calls for one. Calls that I should note have only grown louder as the civilian death toll in Gaza has gotten bigger. But Netanyahu says that that would amount to a surrender to Hamas. Instead, arguing today, and I'm quoting him now, this is a time for war. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. You heard Netanyahu there mention the U.S., but I should note that at the White House, officials there have ruled out supporting a ceasefire and they have not criticized Israel's military actions. Instead, we are told that President Biden has pressed for humanitarian pauses during his calls with the prime minister to allow more aid into Gaza. All of this is coming tonight as Israel has sent even more troops into Gaza, announcing that they have also rescued an IDF soldier who was taken hostage on October 7th. This is Ori Megadish after she was reunited with her family today. This is the moment that she got to hug her grandmother, something that was captured on home video. Hamas put out a video tonight showing three women also being held as hostages. These are pictures that I should note before they were abducted. We are not showing this video. It's a propaganda video from Hamas. And of course, this comes as not just those three women. The IDF says the total number of hostages believed to be being held by Hamas tonight now stands at 238. I want to go straight to CNN's Nick Robertson, who is live in Sterot, Israel tonight. Nick, we're just learning from the IDF. This Israeli soldier was rescued during this ground operation in yeah, Gaza. She's Private the fifth Ori person. Megadish, uh, was, yeah, Private Ori Megadish, she was released uh, in, in a rescue operation, essentially, an intelligence-led rescue operation involving special forces. Um, it, it was described as a rescue by the IDF and the uh, Israel's security forces, the Shin Bet. That's how the IDF has characterized it. But we've got to know a few more details. And it does seem that they were that the IDF, and they're not saying how they got this intelligence, but they got intelligence leading them to understand where she was so that they could put together this operation to go in on the ground uh, and, re and rescue her. Um, she had a medical check, we're told. She was fine after the medical check. We've seen video of her with her family celebrating, hugging her grandmother, her family all around her celebrating. I mean, for the family, this was something, a moment that they thought they might never get. They thought she might never be returned to the family. So a huge moment for them and, and a very significant and important moment for the nation because it gives hope to all the families of all the other hostages who are out there. And some of them, some of those families have spoken about it today, hoping um, that their loved ones can understand that they are out there waiting for them, working hard to get their release. So I, I think it's a very important uh, step, if you will, in this operation because the prime minister, the defense minister, the idea the IDF have all said all along that this is about not only getting uh, destroying Hamas, but it's about getting the hostages. And here's the first one released. Yeah, of course. I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, she's now the fifth person there. But obviously, this is all complicated by what is actually happening in Gaza. We saw 
Israeli aircraft dropping new leaflets over Gaza, warning people again to get out of northern Gaza, calling it a, a battlefield. Nick, I mean, what does that seem to signal about what the next phase of this ground operation could look like? Yeah, troops getting deeper into Gaza, troops getting into much more dangerous situations. The IDF says that the troops on the ground are finding the strong points, Hamas strong points, and calling in airstrikes. And that's what we've been seeing through the day. Planes bringing in airstrikes, artillery fire like that going in, and some quite precise missiles we've seen being fired in, uh, it appears, by helicopter. But once the troops get deeper into the very densely populated Gaza city, hundreds of thousands of people normally living there, it will be a very, very tough environment. And those, those flyers that have been dropped telling the citizens there that it's no longer safe, that they need to get out. But the citizens have been very concerned. How do they get out? They don't know what roads are safe. And there was an incident earlier today when a vehicle that looked like a civilian vehicle uh, got close to an Israeli tank. The tank fired at close range. The vehicle was destroyed. The IDF said, look, we can't know if it was a civilian or a terrorist in that vehicle. And that's what, the, that's what many citizens are worried about. With the troops close, which roads do they use? But the prime minister said there's a humanitarian zone set up in the south of the Gaza Strip, close to the coast. And that's where the government here is telling the citizens of Gaza to go right now. And Nick, what are you hearing behind you right now? Yeah, this is a heavy artillery fire. It's been sort of steady. Oh, that's a heavy machine gun fire. Sustained, could be coming from a helicopter. We know that... There it is again. Can we just pause we know and there listen to are that for Apache a moment? Apache gunships Nick? in the air. And can you remind our viewers yeah, of where you are think, in relation to hmm. to what we're seeing most of the action? So we're about a mile uh, outside of the Gaza Strip, right at the north of the Gaza Strip. That's some very sustained uh, heavy machine gun fire. If that is Apache gunships. Or, or potentially uh, heavy machine guns on, on armored personnel carriers, but most likely uh, Apache gunships, because we have heard them operating. They'll be supporting the troops on the ground. They will be what's brought in as close air support when the troops come in contact with, with the Hamas position. And this is exactly what the IDF has been uh, saying has been happening through the day, that the troops uh, are on the ground. They're moving from building to building down some of the major highways inside of Gaza. But when they reach a Hamas strong point, then additional firepower and I think that's what we're hearing there is brought in to to eliminate those enemy positions. I mean, Nick, it's 3 a.m. where you are right now. Have you been hearing this sustained kind of activity in recent hours or is this something that is just happening as of this moment? Yeah, the artillery picked up a, a few minutes ago, uh, but it's been steady for the past hour. But the couple of hours before that, it was a shell every 20 seconds. It was really very heavy. Um, and these, these are big shells that are being fired because when some of the impacts uh, hit the ground, you can actually feel the detonations even this far away from Gaza. So these are some very sustained and, and heavy bursts of shelling that we've been hearing. Again, they are, we understand, to support the troops on the ground to give them some cover if they get into uh, contact with, with Hamas.
All right, Nick Robertson, we're going to check back in with you this hour as we are hearing that action happening behind you. I'm joined now here in studio by Dan Senor, who is a foreign policy advisor in the George W. Bush administration, the host of the excellent podcast, Call Me Back. His book, The Genius of Israel, also is well-timed and comes out next month. I mean, you could hear what is happening in the background of Nick's shot and stereo right there. And it's going to be going on continuously, I think, for a while, even though we're only at the early stages of this incursion into Gaza. I think it is, it, I think these Israeli forces are just going to go deeper and deeper, you know, sort of calls for ceasefire be damned. I mean, you heard Netanyahu today, I mean, very against. He said a ceasefire is basically not happening. Be, yeah. I mean, Israel's, Israel's in an impossible position because they do not want to maximize civilian casualties. They want to minimize civilian casualties. And they feel that Pal the Palestinian the Hamas is using civilian casualties as a PR tool against Israel. So it's in Hamas's interest to maximize civilian casualties. Israel wants to minimize them. Hamas wants to maximize civilian casualties against Israelis. So Israel's put in the position of having to defend Israeli life, which is why they've gone into Gaza, defend Israel's border, and defend Israeli security, which is why it's gone into Gaza. In doing so, Palestinian civilians are going to get killed. There will be collateral damage, not because Israel's targeting them. You heard Nick say that they're busy sending out, you know, they're trying to alert Palestinians to get out of North Gaza. But Hamas doesn't want them to get out of North Gaza. They want them to stay right there to get the publicity, the media win against Israel. And so these are, and that's why when Netanyahu says, this is a war, like I, I can't pause to help Hamas. And that's effectively what we'll be doing. It's not going to help the, the civilians. Well, you also heard what Nick said, though, about you know, this car. They don't know if it was a civilian, uh, civilians in the vehicle, but the IDF fired on it because they also were like, we don't know who's in there. I mean, that's the other concern we've heard about these IDF, some of the reservists going into Gaza. They haven't seen action in a long time, maybe ever. And I think Netanyahu is feeling the pressure of these this growing civilian death toll clearly because he referenced it today when he was asked about you know, collective punishment. And he said, you know, during World War II, did anyone tell the, the allies to stop bombing Germany because of this? Concern? Yeah, Israel, the United States bombed Dresden. It firebombed Tokyo. I mean, it's war. And look at what the United States, you know, President Biden has repeatedly compared what Israel's gone through to what the U.S. did in facing ISIS and what mm -hmm. the U.S. did facing al-Qaeda. I mean, I saw firsthand what the U.S. did when it faced al-Qaeda in Iraq. And I didn't see it firsthand, but obviously followed closely what the U.S. did against ISIS. There was concern about collateral damage. There was concern about civilian casualties, but it never got in the way of advancing the objectives of defeating ISIS. And so the Israeli government is simply saying to President Biden, you've called Hamas ISIS. So don't hold us to a different standard than you, the U.S. government, would hold when you were prosecuting your war. Yeah, and the way the White House kind of argues it is we're talking about this behind the scenes. We're having these tough conversations, but they haven't even come close to to criticizing Israel publicly. But I want to talk about what's happening in Israel because we saw Netanyahu yesterday do something he never does, which is apologize. Yeah. And that was because of a statement that he put out over the weekend saying that uh, Middle of the night tweet. A middle, middle of the, of the night, night tweet. Never seen those here in the U.S. Um, but it was basically blaming Israeli military and intelligence leaders saying, I had no idea that this right. was coming, but this was the assessment I was given. Yeah, so there's a couple things going on here. First of all, the policy of the Israeli government since Israel left Gaza in 2005. Important to remember, Israel gets out of Gaza in 2005. It says to the Palestinians, it's yours. Hamas takes over in 2007. There were multiple prime ministers from that period through to today, about four or five prime ministers, depending on when you start. But most of the policy through that period was shaped by Netanyahu. During one period that he was prime minister, you know, beginning 2008, 2009, and then when he picked back up now. And the policy was a sort of practical coexistence with Hamas. 
and learning to live with Hamas, even though there'd be military skirmishes. That was the policy. Israel was misled. I mean, they misled themselves in a sense, not deliberately, but they were, they were fooled into believing that Hamas was serious about governing when Hamas was, in the meantime, building the capability to launch a sort of genocidal attack against southern Israel. So Netanyahu's policy and the Israeli government's policy across many prime ministers was a failure. Of course, there's leaking, it's politics. You know, you, politics here, people leak against each other. People, there's finger pointing. And I think Netanyahu was trying to shut that down and say, look, no one ever warned me. But of course, there was an unbelievable public backlash against yeah. that statement because people have their sons and daughters Including serving right dance, now. Right. And so saying. he felt like he had to clean it up. And you're right. He, this is a man who rarely issues an apology, but I do think it was this first statement was inappropriate and the apology was necessary. Given the split that we ha have seen, not always overtly playing out in the top of the Israeli government, I mean, this wartime cabinet that's happening if Israel's even successful, if they go into Gaza and they do what they want, which is to eradicate Hamas's terrorist capabilities, military capabilities, however they put it, I mean, is it clear what happens after that? Because even if they are successful in that, that doesn't mean the threat goes away. I mean, Iran is still there. Hezbollah potentially is still there. Yeah. So first, there, there's something been put into what a post-Hamas Gaza looks like, but they haven't figured it out yet. They're talking to a lot of people. There's been... in indirect conversations with Abu Mazen and the Palestinian Authority who were pushed out of Gaza in 2007. So there's talk about maybe them coming back in. Of course, they say they don't want to come in on the backs of Israeli tanks. There's possibly Arab countries that could serve in some kind of trustee role overseeing it, at least on an interim basis. But this was sprung on Israel. They were totally surprised by it. So the idea that they have some plan of what exists in Gaza after Hamas is just unrealistic. And to your point, victory is not just defeating Hamas eradicating Hamas. Israel, Israel has a genocidal campaign on its southern border, and it has a genocidal campaign on its northern border, Hezbollah. So the Israeli public's attitude right now, and this could change, is Israel needs to get out of this jam where it was in this impossible situation in the south, and we better come up with a plan up north, because Hezbollah has 10 times the capabilities of Hamas, 10 times the manpower, and they've actually got trained in Syria fighting the last few years, so they're actually better trained than Hamas. And then while all this is happening, Iran could just sneak under the wire and announce it has a nuclear weapons capability. So the mood in Israel right now, and, it, and it's fluid, but the mood right now is we've got a big problem. We've got like threats creeping up on us all over the place and we need a holistic solution. We've got to completely change our security doctrine. This is not just about you know, sweeping away Hamas in the South. And I think that is what's concerning the Biden administration because they recognize for Israel to really deal with its security predicament, Israeli leaders are going to feel that they have to escalate broader than just Gaza. Yeah, that is their fear. Dan Sinar, the podcast is Call Me Back. It is excellent. It's a must listen to these days. Thank you. Thanks. All of this is coming as there has been a disturbing rise in anti-Semitic incidents here at home on college campuses, threats of violence against Jewish students, something the White House tonight is calling alarming. Plus, after thinking that their brother and their son had been killed in the attack on October 7th in Israel, a family here in the U.S. has now gotten word that he's been taken hostage by Hamas. His brother is fighting to bring him home, and he's here with us ahead. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. 
There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, police police at Cornell University are standing guard over the campus's Jewish center after threats against Jewish students have been made. Threats so violent and so graphic that the White House and the FBI are now tracking them and doing so closely. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, of course, the nation's highest-ranking Jewish elected official, addressed this matter on the Senate floor earlier today. The incident targeting Cornell's Jewish community is utterly revolting, but unfortunately, it was not an isolated occurrence. Across the country, on campuses and public spaces, the ancient poison of anti-Semitism has found new life. These incidents of hate are not just spiking, but also spreading to other corners of the world. CNN's Nick Watt takes a closer look. A scuffle at Tulane after a pro-Palestinian demonstrator tried to burn an Israeli flag. At Cornell, Jews were threatened with death and called pigs in an online forum Saturday, according to the Cornell Daily Sun. No one should be afraid to walk from their dorm or their dining hall to a classroom. But that's the reality. Another post read, gonna shoot up 104 West. That's the address of the College Center for Jewish Living and the kosher dining hall. We will not tolerate anti-Semitism on this campus. There's no place for hate in America, and we condemn any anti-Semitic threat or incident in the strongest, in the strongest terms. To the students at Cornell, and on campuses across the country. We're tracking these threats closely. At George Washington University, glory to our martyrs among the messages projected on a library wall. Celebrating the individuals who murdered and massacred Israeli civilians. And it's not just college campuses. Slurs painted on a building in Beverly Hills where a Holocaust survivor and her daughter live. Anytime someone hates you, it hurts. A Florida congressman posted Saturday, the temple I belong to was targeted by five people wearing ski masks and shouting, kill the Jews, as congregants left. This has gone into a horrible place that reminds the Jewish community, quite frankly, Uh, of the reason why Israel was created in the first place. Anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. are up nearly 400% since the Hamas terror attacks of October 7th, according to preliminary data just released from the ADL. And let's keep in mind that prior to October 7th, we had already seen the highest number of anti-Jewish acts in America that the ADL had ever tracked in the last you know, 45 years. Quite frankly, there's there are very few corners of the world right now uh, in which you won't see that sort of craziness. Different levels, of course, but it's everywhere. Today in Paris, four Jewish educational institutes received bomb threats. In China, normally strict state censors appear to be allowing extremist anti-Semitic posts online. And in southern Russia, a mob, some carrying anti-Semitic signs, broke into an airport Sunday apparently to meet a flight from Tel Aviv. That was an angry mob that broke through security at an airport looking for Jews. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they were not looking to have a robust foreign policy conversation. At least 10 people were injured, say local officials. The airport had to close. Flights from Israel 
are now being diverted elsewhere. Now, after watching that video, one U.S. State Department official said it looked like a pogrom to me. Today, back home in the U.S., the White House announced measures to try and keep Jewish students safe on American college campuses. You know, this feels different. I was speaking to a Jewish friend of mine just this afternoon who said that in all of her years, she's never felt physically afraid. But now she does. Caitlin? It's hard to hear that. Nick Watt, thank you for that great report. And for more perspective on what we are seeing, I want to bring in Yair Rosenberg, a Jewish-American journalist for The Atlantic, who has written extensively about the intersection of politics, of culture, and religion. I mean, I know that you're no stranger. You have to even confront this yourself online. But what do you make of, of just this summary of what we have been seeing play out in the last few days and weeks? Yeah, so Caitlin, the, the thing about this is that it's not surprising. It's shocking, but not surprising, because every time Israel engages in any form of military conflict, we see these sorts of spikes around the world. Scholars have done some research, and you can find that this happens around the world, particularly in Europe um, and also in the Middle East. Um, and it goes way back, you know, this sort of instinct that I'm upset about what some Jews are doing somewhere in the world. It might be thousands of miles away, and so I'm going to take it out on Jews nearby. Right, that instinct is very, very old and much older than Israel, which was founded in 1948. Um, you can think of one of the oldest anti-Semitic libels, you know, the notion that the Jews killed Jesus, which was something that allegedly happened in the Middle East, but led to centuries of persecution of Jews in places like Europe, where totally different people far, far away. And so when people today firebomb a synagogue in Berlin, which is a thing that's happened, mm -hmm. right, or they send bomb friends to synagogues in Paris, they're actually going along a very well-trodden path of holding all Jews accountable for what any other Jew might do anywhere else in the world. Um, and this is how bigots and racists think of minority groups, right? We've seen that happen to, you know, say, Muslims in North America when people are upset about events in the Middle East and they, they go and attack a mosque in Canada. Um, this is the way that bigots construct minority groups. Yeah. And it's how they treat them. But the way we're seeing it play out on campuses, I mean, what happened <clears throat> at Cornell and the fact that they had to close the kosher dining hall is something that I think, I was just speaking to people yesterday about this. I mean, how do you make of how school leaders, how administrators on these campuses are handling this? Are they, do you think they're even coming close to addressing it? So I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think some you know, school presidents have done a much better job of like being forthrightly in front of this issue and condemning from starting with October 7th and the actual massacre that Hamas perpetrated, which was the worst anti-Jewish violence since the Holocaust and deserve to be condemned. Right. And then up to these incidents, really understanding that when this stuff happens on your campus, you need to address it. And then there are others who sort of have, you know, fumbled the football. I think you saw in Cornell, like they, they reinforced the building with security. And then you had, you know, the governor make a statement with the president of the university, right? right? They really did everything they possibly could to make those Jewish students feel that they were welcomed and that they would be protected, which is basically all you can do in that situation. And we really don't know yet really what happened there. It's an anonymous threat on a forum that's not affiliated specifically with the university. So it really could be anybody who's just trying to mess with Jews. And these are this is a time when people want to do that. Yeah, and it's working though. It's unsettling students, their families. I mean, Jewish communities all throughout the U.S. I've certainly, you know, personally had many conversations with people who normally would feel very secure, who are now looking over their shoulders and are, are, are concerned because they all know somebody who's dealt with this or that. I also, as a reporter, I hear stories that people might not want to go public with, but they'll tell me about, and I'll hear about them on college campuses and elsewhere, things that people have experienced um, that are happening as a result of events thousands of miles away in the Middle East that people then take out on Jews here. Yeah.
Yair, thank you for coming in to talk about this uh, obviously really important topic tonight. Thank you for having me. Up ahead, we mentioned they thought he was among those who was killed in Israel. But three weeks after that Hamas attack, a family living here in the U.S. just found out yesterday their loved one survived, but he is being held hostage by Hamas. We're going to speak to Uriel Baruch's brother. That's next. So we're about a mile uh, outside of the Gaza Strip, right at the north of the Gaza Strip. That's some very sustained uh, heavy machine gun fire. That was CNN's Nick Robertson at the top of this hour here. He is near the Gaza border. You could hear that sustained artillery fire in the background there. Of course, it's about 3 a.m. where Nick is. We're keeping a close eye on that tonight. Also, this comes as the IDF says that the number of hostages that are being held by Hamas in Gaza has grown. That means families who feared that their loved ones were dead are now reeling from whiplash of heartbreak. Loved ones like 35-year-old Uriel Baruch, the married father of two young children. He is now one of the 239 people that Israel says Hamas is holding in its captivity. More than three weeks ago, his family, like the rest of us, witnessed the horror of that attack on the Nova Music Festival. Uriel was there. In the days that followed, his family believed that he had been killed. But then came this weekend and word from the Israelis that in fact, he had survived. That news was followed immediately by the realization that he is being held hostage by Hamas, likely trapped in or around the same parts of Gaza that we now see being targeted by the Israelis. Of course, we know that so many of these hostages, according to the U.S., according to Israel, they do believe are being held in those underground tunnels. His brother, Ohad Baruch, joins me now for his first interview. And Ohad, I'm so grateful that, that you're joining me tonight. I can't even imagine what it was like to go from believing that your brother had been killed to learning he's alive, but he's, he's also a hostage. So first, uh, we, ne- we never we never thought he's, uh, he was killed. We just uh, didn't know what exactly happened to him. And from the from the first uh, video, we saw the situation. We just knew like he not was by his car anymore, like in uh, Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And then we know he uh, was missing. And so what did the, what did the Israeli he, government he, tell you when they called you over the weekend? How, how did they find out that he was being held hostage? They didn't give us any information. They just say, say that they know that he's a hostage. And, and then this is all for now. Like, uh, I believe in the future we will know uh, more information. And so your brother was at this music festival like so many people, I mean, just there to have an enjoyable day. I know that you believe I was supposed to go, supposed to be there as well. Can you just tell us what your brother, what your brother's like? Yeah, so my brother is like the happiest person in the world. He loved the life, uh, loved to enjoy life, uh, love uh, to go to music festivals. We're going all over the world every year. We're going together to many music festivals. And besides uh, that he loves to enjoy life, he's a great father. He has uh, two kids. Uh, one is five years old. One is like seven years old. And the whole is life. 
he loved them so much. He loved to play with them. He loved to take them out. He loved to travel with them. And they really like everything for him. And it's, I can't imagine what is for him like to be so many days without his kids. Oh, and I'm sure it's they the miss him. feeling in the world. I'm sure they miss him so much as well. I mean, when you and your family, when you see these other hostages, or, or today we saw the IDF soldier who was rescued, we've seen other hostages be released, but just, you know, one or two or three at a time. I mean, what does your family make of all of this? Uh, it's give, uh, I believe it's give to any hostage family a big hope that uh, we see like uh, some hostages uh, was released. And the biggest point is to get everyone back home safe. Any hostage uh, to, to, to have them back to his family, to have them back to their family. This is the, the big point. I'm sure you want him back so badly. Can you, did you speak to him at all that day of October 7th as the attack was unfolding? I know it was really early in the morning in Israel as the, all of this was going on. So I, I was in New York in this time. Mm -hmm. I was in New York and we actually spoke when he was on the way to the festival. This is the last time we talked. We we didn't uh, talk in uh, Saturday morning, but we talk uh, like a couple hours before when he was on the way to the festival. He got to the festival around like uh, 12.30 at night. And that was the last time you heard from him? Yes, this is the last time we talk. And after uh, uh, we start to see like some videos and uh, some news, so I tried to text him, I tried to talk to him, but... Uh, his phone already was like um, without signal. All the area there was without signal. Like uh, after an hour or two, uh, that uh, all, it's all stopped. Ohad, I mean, we're all thinking of you and your family. I can't imagine what these three weeks have been like, and we're all hoping for the best. And I'm grateful you you came on and joined me tonight to talk about your your brother Uriel. We'll be obviously hoping and praying for the best for him as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. And I have just one last thing to say that there are hostages for more than 30 countries. And I really hope that all the countries are gonna work together with all the, all the big organization in the world and to have all of them back home safe doesn't matter what they are in a nationality. They all need to, in the end of the day, they all need to become safe as soon as possible. Yeah. Let's bring all of them home. They're all loved ones to somebody. Oh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. And of course, as we look at what's happening on the ground in Gaza, there has been some aid that has been trickling in really just a little bit. But thousands have now been looting United Nations warehouses and a sign of the desperation on the ground that is so clearly growing. We're gonna to speak to a former State Department official who resigned because he said that he believes the US has a blind spot for one side. Why he quit, that's next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn 
for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. You are looking at a live picture of Gaza right there. Of course, it is the early morning hours. What we are learning tonight is that heavy artillery and airstrikes have hit in Gaza tonight. You heard it earlier in Nick Robertson's live shot, but what we are told now is near the Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza, according to the Palestinian Red Cross Society. They said, quote, the building is trembling and that those sheltering inside were experiencing fear and panic. Of course, it's the middle of the night right now. There, We are still trying to learn more about what happened here. All of this is coming as humanitarian organizations are warning of what they say could be a catastrophe in Gaza. This is the head of surgery at Gaza's largest hospital telling CNN that doctors there are overwhelmed with no space to deal with the constant influx of wounded people that they are seeing. Dr. Saeeda recorded and sent us this video showing rows of patients who are lining both sides of a hospital corridor. There's no room for them. While the United States has been touting the arrival of aid entering Gaza, surely it is not nearly enough. Even the U.S. has acknowledged that. And also one former State Department staffer says that he believes the U.S. needs to take more responsibility for the civilian casualties. Josh Paul worked in the bureau within the State Department that's responsible for arms sales. He resigned in recent days over America's support of Israel's response to the October 7th attacks, and he joins me now. Josh, thank you for being here tonight. I was reading your resignation letter. It's quite lengthy, and in it you accuse the U.S. of basically having a blind spot uh, and blind support for Israel, of supporting the occupation and rushing into short-sighted, destructive, and unjust policies. That's what you say in your letter. Can you just kind of walk me through what led to this decision for you to resign? Yes, I've uh, worked in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs for over 11 years. This is the bureau responsible for arms transfers to partners around the world. Uh, I have never seen a circumstance before in which there is a clear risk of civilian casualties resulting from U.S. arms transfers. Uh, and in fact, we are seeing that manifesting on the ground with thousands of Palestinian civilian casualties. And yet no questions asked, not even a debate about whether or not we should provide the arms that are being used to uh, to commit those, uh, I believe, human rights violations, but certainly to kill those civilians. Uh, so faced with the massive scope of the crisis that we are seeing in Gaza, uh, the massive scope of civilian casualties, uh, the fact that I also believe that the policy has not uh, led to peace for Israel or for Palestinians. It has been a, a dead-end policy, uh, and but absent the ability to have even a discussion about that before shipping arms, I felt I had to resign. In your letter, you also say that you made moral compromises, more that you said you can recall, that they have weighed heavily on you. But I mean, as you were in this job for 11 or 12 years or so, the American military aid, I mean, obviously goes to countries that have not even really dubious human rights records, just bad ones. Saudi Arabia obviously comes to mind. You know, why was it this that crossed the line? I think some Well, that's an interesting question. And it goes to the question you posed at the uh, top, where you say that U.S. has a blind spot towards Israel. Uh, in all of those previous circumstances, there has been extensive debate and discussion within administrations, present and past, uh, about what we should do. In fact, the first thing the Biden administration did upon coming to office was to suspend uh, two pending arms sales to the Saudi-led coalition. Uh, even under the previous administration, the Trump administration, there were lengthy discussions and debates and steps taken to mitigate uh, some of the worst potential uh, harm provided of U.S. provided arms. 
That has not been the case uh, in the context of Israel in recent weeks. Uh, on the contrary, there has been no debate. There has been a chilling uh, effect within the State Department, I'm told, by colleagues who remain there. Uh, so I think it's clearly a, a different case here. What are you being told by colleagues who are still there? So I have heard from so many individuals, some of whom I knew, some of whom I, I had never heard of before, uh, some of whom were junior, some of whom were actually very senior, uh, who have reached out to say that they fully agree with, uh, you know, the position I'm taking. And they're finding this incredibly difficult, morally challenging. Uh, but when they try to raise their concerns within the system, uh, they are told they can seek emotional counseling or they can give their portfolio to someone else for a while. Uh, but do not ask us about the policy. Uh, it is being directed from the top. That is what they are being told. And I think they are finding that extremely difficult. Josh Paul, that's all the time we have. But thank you for, for joining us tonight on this resignation. Thank you for having me. Tonight, we're also tracking new developments out of Maine, disturbing ones after the state, of course, is still facing in the aftermath of that mass shooting that happened last week. What we're learning now, there are actually serious warning signs about the suspected shooter that were known by authorities weeks before the attack, but the public is just now learning about them. That's next. Disturbing new reporting tonight on the alarming but seemingly unheeded determination that was made by the U.S. Army about the suspected gunman who killed 18 people in Maine. After a medical evaluation in July, the Army declared that Robert Card, and I'm quoting their assessment now, should not have a weapon, handle ammunition, and not participate in live fire activity. Robert Card, of course, is an Army reservist. He was also determined to be, quote, non-deployable over concerns about his well-being. This comes as CNN has also learned that in July, just three months ago, he spent 14 days at a psychiatric hospital after another soldier was concerned that he was going to snap and commit a mass shooting. Joining me now is former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Andrew, I mean, we were covering this all last week with your assessment of this. I mean, what's clear is there were multiple warning signs but despite that, 18 people have still been killed. Who failed here, do you think? Well, Caitlin, it's, it's really complicated, I think. There were many, many warning signs, and some people in this story tried to do the right thing. I think the bottom line is, when we look at the details, you can understand that our system of gun safety laws is entirely insufficient to prevent a tragedy along these lines. Let's talk just for a minute about the fact that he was committed or he attended or went to a mental institution last July for two weeks. In, our, in, in federal law, you can be prohibited from purchasing a firearm if you've been adjudicated a mental defective. So that means you were involuntarily committed by a court. In this case, if he voluntarily went to an institution for two weeks of treatment, that would not preclude him from ever buying guns. And any guns that you had purchased before you'd been involuntarily committed, you still get to keep those. So there's all sorts of ways that our system is not really effectively geared to stop people who are in crisis from acquiring or continuing to possess firearms. I, clearly, that is the case. I mean, just looking at this, and I think what people are so taken aback by is, you know, if the army is saying, someone should not have a gun, they shouldn't have access to, to ammunition, they are non-deployable because they're so worried about their mental health. I mean, how, do they, how does that message get lost to where someone can go buy a gun legally as he did, you know, just days before that, days after that? 
Yeah, so it's a great question. So that's basically the army saying, we're not comfortable with this person having a gun when they are performing duties for us. But that doesn't impact his what he does as a private citizen, right? So he goes back to his home in Maine. He's never been adjudicated a mental defective. He can continue to arm himself and buy more guns. Maine also does not have a red flag law. They have what's known as a yellow flag law, which is not as effective. It requires you to be already in custody before a police officer can basically uh, require you to be submitted to a mental examination. That never happened here either. We had sheriffs who received disturbing information from the army, went out to his house in an effort to try to talk to him to conduct some sort of an assessment. He refused to speak to them, which is his right. So at that point, they really didn't have a lot of directions to go. And I think we know enough now to know what happened here that more needs to be investigated. Uh, the sheriff's office, the authorities in Maine really need to peel this thing back to understand whether opportunities were missed. Uh, but overall, the situation is very concerning. I mean, it's so concerning. And you mentioned those welfare checks. I'm glad you brought that up because that was, you know, six weeks before this shooting happened, September 15th and 16th. He didn't open the door. Or they said he wasn't there. I mean, when there is no follow up or if someone doesn't want to open the door, at a, at a, do they just leave it? Does law enforcement just say, well, he didn't answer. Someone called, but that's as far as we can go. That's not ideal, obviously, but let's remember that this is Maine. So if they had a red flag law, police might be able to independently go to a judge and say this person is dangerous. His weapons should be removed from him for this period of time, but they don't have that. They have a yellow flag law, which means he has to literally be in custody first. So they would have had to have had some reason to arrest him, take him to jail, and then submit him to some sort of a mental evaluation. Obviously that didn't happen here. Whether or not they could have or not is a little bit questionable. As I said, we need to really dig down on this a little deeper to understand what sort of decisions were made. Um, but the path for law enforcement in Maine to react well to a situation like this is not very clear. Yeah, just so hard to hear this, thinking of, of those families, of those 18 people who were killed. Andrew McCabe, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks. Ahead, remembering a friend. Tonight, the cast of Friends is honoring their late co-star Matthew Perry after he died. Their first joint statement on his death, that's next. I don't think anyone has ever moved a couch since that scene without thinking of that moment on the show Friends. And tonight, the cast of that show has broken their silence about the death of their co-star, Matthew Perry. In a statement to CNN, Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Kudrow David Schwimmer, and Matt LeBlanc have all written, quote, We are all so utterly devastated by the loss of Matthew. We were more than just castmates. We are a family. In time, we will say more as and when we are able. For now, our thoughts and our love are with Maddie's family, his friends, and everyone who loved him around the world. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip is up next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.